Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. You're listening to a series of reflections on COP26. What's it meant? What have we learnt? Where are we going? Has it been worth it, really? With me, Amanda Carpenter, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest today, Seema Joshi, who is Programme Director at Global Witness. And for those of you who were following COP, you will have seen Global Witness's name came up a lot as they held our leaders and our politicians and our business leaders to account and called out some of the possibly less than wholly accurate statements that were being made. So, Seema, welcome and thank you so much for joining Planet Pod. Oh, thank you so much, Amanda, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So if we reflect, can I start maybe? This is a difficult question, I know. But if we reflect on what COP26 has meant and, you know, what it was all about, what are your what are your kind of headline feelings about the, the two weeks of, of, of craziness in Glasgow? <laughs> Uh, it's such a great question, and um, you know, I uh, I've been thinking about it as well because I think it's really important that um, you know we are able to identify like what were the key key great key, key good moments and headlines and opportunities from the COP. Um, and of course, at the beginning of the week, uh, we had some pretty big statements um, from uh, global leaders, you know, particularly in relation to deforestation. I think it was the first um, sort of. The Glasgow, I don't know, was a Glasgow Alliance idea that came out from Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson. Um, so we had, you know, it definitely has been a cop marked by big statements. Um, so one, of course, on deforestation, we must end deforestation and therefore save our planet. And, and then we had another followed, I think, the next day by other big statements on methane. You know, how we must reduce methane. And this is this is the this is the easy way to to basically address, uh, you know, um, a big uh, fraction of the part of global warming. Um, and then we had, you know, you know, some other statements about, um, you know, it's I think with the the um, the stuff about adaptation, mitigation, the climate finance. Um, I mean, there was there was a little bit of discussion around this, but um, you know, I don't I don't get the impression that I mean, it's on the table. It, I mean, this was the main issue that many of the southern governments we know in countries that came here to discuss this as the main issue at this COP. You know, I, I, I think that there was some profile around this and we did have some commitments being made, uh, but I don't have a sense as to whether these go anywhere far enough um, as to what's needed. Yeah, so so my, my impression is, um, well, big statements being made, which are positive. Uh, we can look at deforestation. You know, Global Witness works quite a bit on deforestation, specifically financing financial institutions, banks, and how they are essentially funding companies such as beef, big beef traders, soy, palm oil, that, um, in, you know, according, as we've documented in our reports, are actually engaged in deforestation. So a big call we have is to actually uh, regulate the banks and the financial sector so that they actually need to carry out robust checks in their supply chain and to, with their customers who they're funding you know, to ensure that they're not funding and uh, deforestation itself by them. And, and this is pretty significant. So so we did have a lot of countries, um, you know, this Glasgow Declaration sign up to that, uh, including Brazil. You know, so we had some countries which has a lot of illegal deforestation. So on one hand, that is an opportunity. And, and we were quite uh, clear, actually, that um, it's great to have this 
global momentum and attention to the issue of deforestation, but it's really absolutely critical that we actually don't repeat past declarations, statements, you know, these high-level policy statements that have been made, for example, I don't know, 2014, where actually no action is then done. And it's the monitoring of the action. It's not just the monitoring, it's, in, it's the legal accountability. This is the part that really needs to be on the table. Uh, so rough, for us, this is central. So um, the opportunity is it's a topic. Governments are aware of it. Um, the unfinished business, so to speak, is really really getting on top of the financial sector and holding um, banks, these actors, to account. They need to be held to account. Um, we issued a report just previous to the COP uh, called Deforestation Dividends. In the report, you know, we had we documented um, that since the Paris Agreement, um, banks in the, the U.S., the U.K., EU, and China had provided, I think it was $157 billion, you know, worth of deals to these types of businesses that are basically driving deforestation. So, 157 billion. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty shocking. And all of these banks are ones that have statements. They have no defo- they have anti-deforestation statements. Yeah, they probably um, have net zero statements. As that's well, correct. They? they have net zero statements. So it's just it's a really good indication that we have we're at a really important moment of time where we have to change course. We can't do business as usual. And and we know that looking at the banks, for example. Um, the big, they're all the big banks named this report, such as HSBC, um, JP Morgan. Uh, these statements are there, but unless pushed by an external uh, body, such as the government, and unless regulated by an external body, um, such as the government, <laughs> we're not going to have the change that we need to see. And it's pretty, it's very urgent. Um, I mean, deforestation, it's, it's, it has so many important elements. You know, when there's a deforested area, they re- it, re- it releases carbon, but also they are, when they're standing, they're, these are important carbon sinks. Um, and of course, they're also the homes to many indigenous communities. And, and this is a primary point as well. Uh, I mean, we have always said that indigenous communities have had the ability to manage their lands for centuries and and live off the land. And and really, there's a lot that we can learn from that uh, in terms of land management and and also how we approach forestation, let's say. Um, Another significant area um, with the methane, because I think the methane declaration it was someone referred to me referred it to me and said to me oh this was a low-hanging fruit you know (laughs) we of course we should all agree on the methane reductions you know we can have quick results this should be the focus and 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 again um i mean we were a bit again happy to see that this is on the table low-hanging fruit but the targets were not ambitious enough and there's a lot of scientific research which basically shows that we need much more ambitious targets. You know, we have the, um, the International Energy Agency basically saying that, you know, we need to, we need to stop the production, you know, of, of fossil fuels, expansion and production of fossil fuels if we want to stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius. And but, we want to stay there. That whole thing about, sorry, but the yeah, thing about fossil fuels, and it, it plays back to what you've just been saying about the banks and deforestation, is that actually these large financial institutions are funding mm. and supporting financially fossil fuel extraction. They're, they're supporting um, deforestation. And, you know, they, they make the statements, but but actually nothing seems to change. And this, it, it feels to me, one of, the, one of the kind of, if you like, the kind of conundrums of COP is that 
this has been described as the finance cop. It's very important mm. that we've got, you know, big financial institutions looking at funding green and alternative technologies mm. and investing in it and, you know, increasing the, the economic value of, of, of an alternative green um, renewable approach to, to managing both, you know, energy and all sorts of other things as well, production as well. But, but essentially, they're carrying on as normal funding things that we know are fundamentally damaging to, to life on the planet. And, and no one seems to, I mean, people talk about this, but there doesn't seem to be any real action as to holding these individuals or organisations to account. How can we possibly do that? I mean, you've highlighted a really critical point around these voluntary statements. I mean, we're living in a system society where essentially banks, you know, all these fossil fuel companies, I mean, for decades, I mean, have, the, the, the idea has been that, well, companies can self-regulate and self-regulation means issuing these voluntary statements where they basically say they will do stuff like cut their carbon emissions, like not deforest, uh, not have child exploitation in their supply chain. There's so much evidence to show that this just does not work. And essentially, we need to really, really as a society, as a move, as like people who want change in this space, we need to just acknowledge that immediately, that we cannot rely on voluntary statements. It is not going to lead to the change that we need. Therefore, we need external monitoring, verification, uh, regulation. This is what we need to basically get the change. And and this is, uh, the urgency of it is, I mean, it's so obvious. Like everybody on the street, when, you know, whenever I talk to people, they really want to see action taken, just as you've said, Amanda. Like, why can't we have real action? You know, I, I strongly believe in, um, I'm actually a lawyer by training, and in the beginning of my career, I uh, did corporate law. And it was very, um, I, it always sticks with me, the advice that we would give to the companies and the what, what companies would respond to. I think the bottom, at the end of the day, companies are legal entities. And um, I always think it's, it's uh, we need to really distinguish. It's not about people in companies being bad. For me, it is about companies are legal entities. If you want to control uh, a legal entity and indicate, you know, what are the benefits a legal entity can have or the accountabilities, there must be laws to basically regulate this. And essentially, companies themselves, they rely on laws to ensure that there's a level playing field, to ensure they understand what should be done, can be done so they can plan proactively, so they can inform their board, so the shareholders know. It's, that's the way the system is basically structured. And so it's extremely dangerous and problematic if we just accept voluntary statements and allow this to continue actually beyond this COP. I, there's absolutely no evidence to support that voluntary statements will bring the change that we need. And I really feel that this is COP26, how long has it been that we've been waiting for action? And in fact, it's it's too long. And how many? It almost makes you your heart sink. And which is why you can see why activists on the street, Greta Thunberg, like these young people, are so angry mm-hmm. because every, it, this happens like at every all these cops that have passed a failure to have action. And it really um, we need to shift the agenda to really focus on the impact, the impacts we're feeling, human and planet. And what is what are the levers that will basically bring the behaviour change that we need? And and the the law is hugely important in this. And having you know good, sound, good quality, robust legal instruments and being able to hold organisations to account is incredibly important. 
And this has been talked about, you know, as well as being the finance COP, being the kind of law COP, mm. and we might solve some of the, the problems around climate governance and, and the legal commitments. But but how do we how do we work within that framework if we have, particularly here in the UK, uh, a national government that that really just takes no notice of, <laughs> of the law and whenever it suits it is happy to both disregard or overturn mm. any kind of, you know, established legal framework. So it's very difficult to, to mm-hmm. work against both that as a kind of tone mm-hmm. and an attitude mm-hmm. and also what we can see as very clearly vested interests around yes. continuing business as usual. I mean, the fact that I think Global Witness pointed this out, among others, that you know there are an extraordinarily high number of fossil fuel companies who sent delegates to to COP. Mm-hmm. So you know, w- what are we doing here? You know, I mean, this just, this doesn't seem to make any sense. Yes, um, I mean, there's there's many good elements to that question. I mean, in the UK, I mean, when your government is not responding, when your government is actually the problem, right? And so it's not just the industry that is pushing back against you; it, it is the the government. And and a lot of uh, work that we've done really looks at corporate capture. That's, I mean, the capture of let's say um, government decision makers um, and how that is basically driving decisions that are made or aren't made. So, I mean, just just to acknowledge, I agree with you, like the corporate capture, the, the fossil fuel lobbyists or even the, the company lobbyists, because I know their agriculture lobbyists are, are pretty significant on this as well. Um, the research you were pointing to yesterday, we issued um, our findings that when we went through the preliminary participants list for the COP, we could identify 503 fossil fuel lobbyists. So these are lobbyists either directly or indirectly linked to a fossil fuel company. They represented over a hundred fossil fuel uh, companies and a large contingent of, of uh, the representation, I think over just over a hundred were connected with the International Emissions Trading Association. So, I mean, when you just break it all down, and of course the point we made and we still make is that if the lobbyists were a country, they would have been the largest country delegation at the COP because the largest delegation we could see from the participants list was was Brazil or is Brazil and they have I don't know just under 480 delegates so you know it just it's the size and the scale you have that many lobbyists and then as well when you break it down to uh, how does that compare with the number of delegates who are present from let's say the eight worst affected countries by the climate crisis I mean it just it basically outweighs it when you look at, um, it's a two-to-one ratio of fossil fuel lobbyists to indigenous peoples who basically are delegates. So you can see right now, like how the how the conversation is skewed and, and where there's an imbalance of power and who's actually influencing the conversation. And of course, carbon emissions, carbon trading, you know, all of these ideas, uh, carbon capture storage, you know, they're very high on the corporate agenda. But actually, they're very low when you talk to activists and indigenous peoples and human rights organizations on their agenda, because what's high on the human rights agenda is basically the call that we must reduce emissions now. Mm. And essentially, that is purely in the control of high emitting companies, such as fossil fuel companies, many big agricultural industrial producers um, and others. So. So I think how you get the change, which is very key, how how you've said, I mean, I, I think when it is exposing you know, to the general public more that this is how the power dynamic plays out. And and this is the the lobbying influence over your government, um, your politicians. I mean, we see it in other areas of politics and we need to demand accountability, at least in these democracies that we're living in, you know, of our politicians to basically prioritize the climate. And, And none of us want to be in a position 
where we're in a further state of devastation. Um, so yeah, I feel quite strongly that it's this research, it's the investigations, it's the campaigning, it's getting the information out there. People are reacting to it and people really need to then take that power and hold their government officials to account. Um, I mean, in the UK, it was interesting because of the draft environment bill. We were we were pushing quite hard to have Indigenous peoples included in the bill as well, as well as other human rights that be supply chain and focus, that it address certain agricultural commodity trading um, industries like beef, soy, palm, and also that the finance sector be regulated. So I know it's still going through the process in the UK, but they didn't accept the regulation of the financial sector yet. <laughs> but we're not—we're hoping that's not finished. Um, and it's just, yeah, we really need to really get our government officials to really prioritize the people on the planet. It, they're just prioritizing companies, corporate profits way too much. And, and it's harming us all. And this is basically what is not only driving the climate crisis, but inequality, mm, inequality absolutely. here in the UK, inequalities globally. And and actually, you know, I often refer to this as this predatory economic model that actually I know that earlier, Amanda, you said it was we need systems change. I totally agree. And I think the systems change is to get rid of this type of, you know, predatory model, this system, you know, where it's basically benefiting very few and it's allowed the capturing of decision makers um, you did. You did ask me, um, perhaps my impression as well of, of the conversations. I mean, just maybe some impressions on gaps. You know, if I may. Mm, um, yes, please do. Yeah, I, 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 you know, a large area of our work is is really focused on land and environmental defenders and climate, you know, and climate defenders. And every year we publish, you know, a report. Most recently in 2020, we're working with some partner organizations. We 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 collect data that records the killings of London environmental defenders. And in 2020, uh, we recorded 227 killings, uh, which is the largest number that we have recorded since we started recording them in 2012. Um, and this, because of the methodology we use, it must be publicly reported. You know, there's, there's cross-checking to confirm that there has been a death. Um, this is surely an underestimate because many people are killed and it is not publicly recorded. It's not classified, you know, as, as a, you know, as a as a killing potentially. And uh, we know that a lot of women, you know, are basically um, harmed and uh, it's not recorded. I mean, my since I've been here, I've had, I guess, the, the opportunity to be involved in, in two specific conversations and events with land and environmental defenders, uh, indigenous groups and also youth activists. And one of them uh, was um, last Tuesday, we essentially, Global Witness held an event where we wanted to uh, remember all of the land and environmental defenders who have been killed since the Paris Agreement came into effect. And essentially, through our own annual recording, we recorded 1,003 land and environmental defenders being killed. And there's been no justice, you know, in, I mean, maybe in one of these cases, Bertha Catharist, you know, you had, because of pressure, there was some investigations, but... Um, most never acted or never investigated nothing, just like people who have been killed, families that have been devastated, uh, people still seeking justice. And it's it's so heartbreaking. Um, and as this uh, memorial, we sort of remembrance, we had all the names going. And it's, you know, when you see the magnitude of the names, which again is surely an underestimate, you know, you really get the sense of how broken this conversation is and how broken the system is. You know, because, you know, we're having a conversation, something so powerful, you know, it's, it's, in, a, it's in an outdoor space, you know, in the, in the green zone. The blue zone is across the river on the other side. 
There's nobody there who basically has decision-making, negotiation power, even participating in this conversation. And in fact, many of the people who attended our event would be would be would face intimidation, mm-hmm. you know, from you know the government people in those delegations. It's very scary, and, and these are the people that we essentially need to have not in front of I mean, not just in front of the negotiations, but they need to be part of the solutions. And you know, with the problem we still have at events like the COP is that we're kind of all the, on the periphery. You know, mm-hmm. our job is to basically just you know really raise profile and you know, hold to account, but we're not, we're never in the inside. And I, I don't think that <laughs> I'm not advocating that we all are on the inside, but I just, there is something broken with that system where, again, as we were talking about earlier, the fossil fuel lobbyists have no troubles getting on the inside. Mm-hmm. But when we're looking at, you know, these indigenous communities, people directly impact, we had women from Ecuador who were chanting, it was very powerful and crying. Yeah, I, you know. I was privileged enough to go to a, a, a conversation with some some indigenous women. One of them, I think, probably was in your involved in your event um, from Ecuador. And what really struck me is hearing her say, "It isn't just the land defenders who are killed; it's the families who are um, abused, it's mm-hmm. the women who are raped, it's yeah. the children who are terrified." Mm-hmm. And you know, these are people who are not just at the front line of trying to protect their communities and are incredibly precious, Mm -hmm. you know, biodiverse habitats and ecosystems. You know, they're also at the front line of the impacts of climate change. And, you know, they're feeling it in a way that many of us who sit sit here in the UK don't feel it. You know, we have a little moan about the fact there might be a tree on the line and we're all late getting to COP or the weather's been particularly bad. But we're not at Mm -hmm. that front line of the devastation of climate change, which even if we stopped emissions tomorrow would continue because the, the emissions yeah. are already in the atmosphere. So, so, so some of the senses I was getting is that, as you say, there are, there are far more indigenous communities at this COP than there have been at other COPs. Mm-hmm. There are far more, far more young people at this COP than there have been at other COPs. But they are very much, if you like, dare I say, window dressing. They're there mm-hmm. on the outside. They're there as, you know, there's a day and everyone t- makes a fuss. But they're not in the negotiations. They're not sitting in the rooms. They're not sitting behind closed doors and actually saying... It's no good a voluntary agreement for reduction. It's got to be binding. It's got to be legal. It's got to be now. It's got to be more. Um, And I don't know how much more noise we can make, really, um, those of us who are passionate about this, to actually have our voices heard. That's what's so slightly frustrating about this. And and people who took part in the extraordinary global day of action all around the world, not just the 100,000 odd who turned out in the rain in Glasgow, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we're there. We're crying out for change, but, but, but largely being ignored or being fobbed off with declarations and statements and mm. rehashed amounts of money that go nowhere near tackling the real issue. Yeah. So it's, there's, a, there's an element of frustration, isn't there? Mm-hmm. There's an element of, of, you know, crying out, listen to us, do something. Mm. And obviously organisations like Global Witness are hugely important in making sure that we hear the real narrative and we get the real facts. Um, but what can we do as citizens to, to, to affect greater change? And where should we be putting our kind of lobbying effort and our energy? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that in addition to sort of lobbying our MPs and, you know, to prioritize issues around the climate crisis, um, it, it, I think that's, that's, that's something we can all do. And, and, you know, when we have had some MPs who've reacted, for example, to our calls on deforestation, it was a conservative MP. So I don't want to say that, um, you know, it's not possible. So it is, obviously, I think we need to appeal to people on an individual level. 
that um, the urgency is here. And I, I completely agree with you, Amanda, that what I, the, my other reflection is that we have downplayed the impacts people are feeling now. And it's very scary. And, you know, we it, similarly, we had another event and there was a, an activist from Kenya, youth activist, and she was speaking about uh, really the, the devastation now and the impacts on Kenya, on the Maasai, and how there's more drought, there's more poverty. And as a result, you know, Maasai are, are basically marrying off their girls, their children for money. You know, so there's a whole impact you know, that is blind, you know, to many people in this space. And that is what people have to do when they are faced with poverty. And it's really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, this lady from the Philippines, she was saying she her community, basically thousands of people died because of the typhoons. So she also had tears in her eyes when she was speaking to this. US and yet we don't senator. hear about that, do we? It's not reported no. in the same way, is it? No, I mean, you know, no. it doesn't get the same air coverage. <laughs> And, and, and I think you're right, it's that intersection, isn't it, between the climate emergency and, and the human rights issue and the kind of climate yes. justice is a human rights issue as well, a human rights justice. And, and, I, and I suppose just having these conversations helped to impart, mm. but, but, but maybe encouraging people to be more direct in their action, maybe choosing to not bank with a bank or choosing to move yes. their pension or choosing to take direction and not purchase something way beyond just you know asking everyone to reduce their meat consumption because the way we should do that it, it seems to me that that's you know not always fair to take the responsibility for reducing emissions onto solely onto individuals we do need to be pushing governments yeah. and, and, and bigger actors so so perhaps informing people and empowering people to say i am not going to work with buy from connect with this particular yes. organization that that is one way i guess we can show our our our, our our anger and, and our desire for justice. Yes. I mean, I, the fossil fuel industry is pretty much like the tobacco industry, isn't it? I mean, I think yeah, most people will accept that analogy now. And, and mm -hmm. I think as an individual, you know, this is something that we can take a position on, you know, for, at the, you know, on fossil fuel, you know, on our cars and everything. It's not so much the car that we, we if we can't afford an electric, that blame should not be put on us. What we should be doing is putting pressure you know, on the on the government to stop, you know, the production of these vehicles, to provide subsidies so we could basically not subsidize the fossil fuel sector, which is still happening. Yeah. But absolutely. subsidize, you know, renewables. Green, hy green hydrogen. Yeah. Or, and also public transport, let's face it. Public you know, transport, that would transport. be really great, you know, to really upgrade that. And also subsidize, you know, all of the renewable energy, wind, solar, stuff that is like that for us will, it, you know, is really, you know, that will benefit us. It will benefit our economies in the longer term. Fossil fuels are dying, you know, and our economies are not going to grow basically based on the consumption. If anything, we're being more hampered. And I think when we look at the energy, you know, the gas prices, the crisis that we faced here in the UK just about a month ago where uh, the gas companies were folding, the prices were going up. I mean, this is actually the result of the UK essentially prioritizing supply from Russia you know, for fossil gas and, and gas is a fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. and, and essentially, you know, all of the science indicates that we must, in fact, immediately phase out fossil gas because not only does it produce the carbon, it produces the methane. And that actually wasn't addressed in part of the methane discussions, you know, fossil fuels more, more broadly, but even gas, fossil gas, you know, to avoid this type of catastrophe, because I think it's a demonstration that now we're in, you know, it's the there's a moment of urgency where, yes, you know, all of us, we're going to face, will we face rising costs of heating our homes? The winter is coming. You know, uh, we're kind of a bit 
angry but a bit trapped. We need the government to basically build in cushions, you know, protect the pricing. These companies have their position that they're going under. We're going under. You need to help us. You know, don't don't build in this sort of um, kind of absorption. You know, so we can raise prices so people have to pay more for there's a whole discussion around this but I mean, our position is let's this is just the beginning mm-hmm. you know we should have diversified way more our energy supply i mean years ago towards renewables and essentially then we wouldn't be in this position mm-hmm. and, you know and i know here in scotland i think it was someone was like 90 percent of so electricity is provided by renewable energy it's incredible yeah yeah so yeah. i mean it's not an issue of the ability for this to happen it can be scaled up it's not been a priority of government and I think as individuals, having this information and know and supporting the end of fossil fuels now, fossil fuel companies, they shouldn't be allowed anywhere near decision makers when we see any linkages or this type of capture. These are the positions that we can take now yeah. to basically, you know, the, get them out, get them out of the picture because yeah. the time is up. Yeah, absolutely. Take action and, and vote the change, I think, were Obama's words. And, they're, yeah. they're, you know, they're the right words. Huge thank you to you, Sima, for sharing your thoughts on COP. And uh, not not wholly positive, <laughs> but we know that, that we have to be realistic. And that's the other kind of burden, I guess, that we share, isn't it, as, as climate activists and as people who are concerned about this, this conversation. So, so thank you. It's been really enlightening and thoughtful, and it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Amanda. You've been listening to Planet Pod. A huge thanks to my producer, Jim, and Beth, who manages the programme. Do keep listening and send us your thoughts and ideas via social media or via the website. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.